In my early days, I faced a pivotal moment in my career. Instead of following the herd into traditional finance, I charted my own course. Despite skepticism, I founded my investment firm driven by a belief in economic truth and fiscal responsibility. Through perseverance, I established myself as a leading voice in finance, proving that sometimes blazing your own path is the best way to succeed. To get what you want, sometimes you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail. That's what Harry's did. Seeing people tricked by expensive razors, Harry's took a stand. Instead of pricey options, they offer high-quality razors at a fraction of the cost. That's why when it comes to grooming my face, I use Harry's. Harry's understands the value of quality without breaking the bank. Their razors provide a smooth shave every time, and their shaving gel leaves my skin feeling refreshed and moisturized. So don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com gold. That's harrys.com gold for a $3 trial set. We all make mistakes, decisions that we regret, things we'd like to do over, like not buying Bitcoin when you first heard about it at $1. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. At times, therapy has helped me and my loved ones in many ways. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. With the right guide, you can discover effective strategies to minimize distractions and truly connect with your needs, setting the stage for a more balanced life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched up with a life therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit betterhelp.com slash gold today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash gold. The Peter Schiff Show. Today was the first trading day of the fourth quarter of 2019, and if today's action was a harbinger of things to come, it is going to be one difficult quarter for the bulls on Wall Street. In fact, when they rang the opening bell this morning, everybody was happy. The stock market was up. The dollar was up. Gold was down again. In fact, gold has had a pretty big correction since my last podcast on uh, on Wednesday, I think, last week. In fact, yesterday, gold saw about a $25 decline again with a stronger dollar and a stronger stock market. For some reason, I think uh, investors were a little bit more optimistic over the last few days. Uh, after my last podcast, Donald Trump talked about, or there were some rumors that he was thinking about um, maybe delisting Chinese companies from U.S. exchanges uh, making it illegal or something for Americans to invest in China, which I thought was a very dangerous road for the president to go down. Remember, when you live in glass white houses, you don't want to throw stones. You know, the United States benefits from a lot of direct investment from overseas, particularly China. Chinese invest a lot in U.S. businesses. They're big buyers of U.S. real estate. And of course, they're still big holders of U.S. treasuries. And if the United States says, well, Americans can't invest in China, well, what happens if the Chinese return the favor? I think we have a lot more to lose uh, than they do. And I think uh, at the following day, 
the president or maybe over the weekend, they kind of backtracked away from that trial balloon and they said, no, we're not considering this. So probably that was a good news, a relief for the market that that wasn't going to happen. But also, I think for a couple of days, the economic news wasn't quite as bad as uh, it could have been, or maybe some of the numbers actually were not, you know, a little bit better or beat the numbers. Uh, and so I think there was some idea, hey, that maybe the economy is not as bad as some people had feared. But then reality reared its ugly head at 10 o'clock this morning when we got the ISM manufacturing numbers. This was the September number, and it was going to follow up on the August number, which was 49.1, which was contraction. And anything above 50 uh, indicates an expansion in the manufacturing economy. Anything below 50 would indicate contraction. And so last month, we got the first contraction. We got 49.1. And the expectation for September was for a bounce back to 50. So maybe not back to expansion, but out of contraction. So uh, that's what was expected. We got the number and it was 47.8. So not only did we not get back to 50, we actually went down and printed something substantially lower. In fact, we blew through the 48 handle and went all the way down to 47.8. Now you have to go all the way back to June of 2009. That's over 10 years ago to find an ISM manufacturing number this bad. Now, this was the tail end of the Great Recession, right? The greatest economic downturn since the Great Depression. And if you look at a lot of the other components of the ISM, I mean, some of them you have to go back to March of 2009 to find data this bad. So this is barely the tail end coming out of the worst uh, contraction since the Great Depression. Yet Donald Trump wants us to believe that we have the greatest economy ever. I mean, how do we have the greatest economy ever when we have one of the worst manufacturing economies ever, especially since it was manufacturing that was supposed to make America great again. That's what Trump was supposed to do. He was going to make America great again by revitalizing manufacturing, by restoring our manufacturing greatness. Instead, we're back at where we were during the Great Recession. So how could this possibly be the greatest economy? In fact, the only thing that this economy has going for it is massive deficit spending. That's it. What is driving U.S. GDP is consumer spending borrowed money and the government spending borrowed money. That's it. That's the secret. Have a borrowing binge and spend a bunch of money to try to artificially boost the GDP while the actual economy, the real economy, is imploding. Now, when the stock market saw this number, it reversed. It immediately started to head down. The dollar also reversed. It immediately started to go down. And gold reversed. And it went up, and gold ended up closing up maybe, I think, $8, $9 today. Uh, we're back around $14.80. We were trading you know, down around $14.60 or so before the number came out. Now, we're below $1,500. I think anything below $1,500 at this point is a buy. And, in fact, we had an even bigger correction in the gold mining stocks over the last few days. They were all up today. 
But as far as I'm concerned, these stocks are great buys right now. In fact, you should not be upset if you own gold stocks. Don't worry about these pullbacks. These are just opportunities to buy more. Because, you know, we're always earning more money, we have more money, and we want to buy uh, or use these pullbacks as buying opportunities to increase our positions. But the price of gold reversed along with the stock market and the dollar today. The dollar index uh, closed near the lows of the day, down about 25. We're still above 99 at 99.12 because we had been moving up a bit uh, last week. But we got as high as like 99 spot 7 earlier this morning, getting close to 100 uh, before that data point came out. But the Dow closed almost on the low tick of the day. In fact, I think it was the low of the day, down 343 points. That's a 1.2% move. Uh, But the Nasdaq Composite down 90, again, about the same percentage. Russell 2000, almost down 2%. They're closed right near the lows or on the lows, down 29.9 points. The transports really got beat up on the day, down 2.35%, 244 points on the transports. That was actually off the lows of the day uh, by a few ticks. But this was a very, very weak day for the stock market. But what I think is more significant than the manufacturing numbers And, of course, you know, a lot of people are still dismissing the weak manufacturing numbers. They think, oh, it's no big deal. It's a a self-inflicted wound. You know, it's all because of the trade war. And all we have to do is uh, end the trade war. You know, Trump can come out with a deal whenever he wants. And and so as soon as we end the trade war, well, the manufacturing sector is going to recover. That is a bunch of BS. It's a bunch of wishful thinking. Look, manufacturing would probably be in this recession even if we didn't have a trade war. Right. But the the prospects of a deal, I think, are creating a false sense of optimism. It's people are looking forward to the deal. Well, when the deal happens, it's going to be a no big deal. It's going to be buy the rumor, sell the fact. In fact, once we have a deal, there'll be nothing for the markets to look forward to. I mean, what have they got? QE has already restarted. The Fed is already cutting rates. I mean, what is going to help this market? The only thing that's out there that could help it is a trade deal. So once we have a trade deal, then there's nothing that can help the market, and the market's going to go down. But what's really going to drive it down, what I you know began to say, is what I talked about on Wednesday's podcast, and that is the collapse of the money losing stocks, right? This is where all the hot speculative money had been going on Wall Street to money losing companies, right? This is what all the venture capitalists have been financing. In fact, it's been driving the markets and the economy, and it's really been the poster boy of, of this bubble, right? This is These are the extreme examples of excess and wild speculation that have been going on in the equity markets, and they are the first to crack, right? The weakest link in the chain breaks first, but then the rest of the chain is going to go. And I pointed about out what was happening in the IPO market last week. We got the IPO for Smile Direct, which priced at 23 and which never saw 23 in the public market. The high price was 21.10. It went straight down from the IPO. It closed down another 4.77% today. It's at $13.17 versus an IPO of $23, right? Well, what happened on Friday after I did that podcast, another highly anticipated IPO 
Pelton Interactive. And, and Pelton Interactive, they make these high-tech exercise bikes right, that kind of interact with you like a personal trainer, right? Very hyped-up IPO, right? This thing, again, it was priced at 29 That was the IPO price. If you were lucky enough, you had connections at the broker-dealers, right? You got stock, right? Highly coveted. You got in on an IPO. You got to buy at 29 before they went public where the average guy could buy. So the IPO price was 29 The highest it ever traded as a public stock the day of the IPO was $27.98. Right? Never got back to 29 It closed today down almost 10%. It just started trading on Friday. This is Tuesday. The stock closed at $22.51. You bought it on the IPO at 29 Your check hasn't even cleared. Right. I don't even know if the trade settled. It's T plus two. Right. So it settles today, barely settles. And you're already down. What is that? Twenty something percent. I hard to say just off the top of my head, but from twenty nine to twenty two spot five one and more of these money losing stocks going down. Look at Chewy getting chewed up again. I talked about this again last week that it was getting closer and closer to its IPO price because this one actually had a pop. Right. It came out at twenty two. And that first day, the first day it printed 41 spot 34. It closed today down almost 6%. New low for the stock closed at 23.15. The low was 23.02. We only have about another buck before we get back down to the IPO price on this one. My guess is we'll be crashing through it uh, sometime this week. I said it on my last podcast that it wouldn't take long before this stock made new lows. But you know, some of the other recent IPOs that got clobbered today were Lyft and Uber, right? Lyft sank another 3.8%, closed at 39.57. The low was 38.68. This stock came public at 72. 72, it's at 39.57. And remember, it had an opening day pop up to 88.6. Maybe that was the last time, you know, uh, we had this kind of a pop, although I guess we had it in Chewy. But it went up to 88.60. But remember, then it closed down back at the IPO price, and then it was straight downhill from there. But think about the guy that bought it at $88. It's less than half that price now at $39.57. Uber also going down. That thing came public at 45 The highest it ever got to was 47.08. So it did manage to claw its way back above its IPO price, but not for long. We closed down over 4% today. $29.15 was the close. The low on the day was 28 spot 65 on Uber, right? So these companies falling apart, investors are losing their appetite for money losing stocks. But probably the biggest disappointment on the week in the IPO market came from Endeavor Entertainment, right? If you're not familiar with Endeavor, this is the media conglomerate out in California that is run by Ari Emanuel. And if you don't know who Ari Emanuel is, if you've ever watched uh, the the uh, HBO series Entourage. I mean, I, I, I watched that. I was a real fan of that show. Um, but my favorite character in Entourage was Ari Gold, who was the manager. Well, Ari Gold is actually based on Ari Emanuel. And Ari Emanuel, too, is the brother of Rahm Emanuel. Uh, so he's got the political connections. He's got the Hollywood connections. And now he was going to take Wall Street by storm with this highly anticipated IPO, right? I think it was an $8 billion valuation for his company, which, by the way, has a lot of debt because they've been 
you know, gobbling up other companies. I think the biggest acquisition was the William Morris Agency, but there he's really trying to build up an entertainment juggernaut, uh, you know, conglomerate, whatever it is, but he levered up to do it, and he was counting on this IPO cash to maybe repair his balance sheet and delever a little bit. Well, they tried to get this IPO off, but they couldn't do it. There were no buyers. They had to shelve the thing, so it's not going public. And again, we got more news at the end of the week that WeWork, that was having trouble with its IPO and had to delay its IPO, basically canceled its IPO. So now the WeWork IPO is not going to happen either, right? So this is very, very dangerous for the markets because if investors are no longer willing to finance Money-losing companies, if that type of speculative fervor has come to an end, this is a huge bell ringing on Wall Street. And it has massive implications, not only for the stock market, but for the overall economy. Because this has been really key. A lot of the employment has been a function of the ability of startups not to have to make a profit, right? Investors have given companies a long leash. So there's been a very low bar to get money. All you have to do is grow your revenue. You don't have to make a profit. And investors were willing to subsidize those losses, basically betting that these companies would eventually make a profit, but not actually stopping to think about what the prospects for those profits actually were because their business models were so flawed. Because what happened was all of these companies began to organize themselves for the IPO, right, to attract the VC money ultimately with an IPO exit strategy. So the name of the game was just to build the business that generated all sorts of top line growth with a sexy story that could show a lot of new customers and a lot of growth. Well, one of the ways to do that was to sacrifice profitability, right? And by sacrificing profitability and basically you know, underpricing their product or service, delivering a lot of value to the customer. In fact, so much value that they lost money in the process. They were really able to give these VC investors what they wanted, which was the high growth, sexy story in order to bail out with the IPO. And so they didn't care about making money from their customers. That wasn't the goal. The goal was to make money from the stock investors, right? They were going to cash out in the IPO to investors who didn't give a damn that these companies didn't make a profit because they were greedy and they just wanted to buy because they thought the price of the stock was going to keep going up. And this was a great party while the party lasted, but the party is now over. And again, this has great implications for a lot of markets. I mean, first, let's just start with WeWork, right, which I talked about, you know, many times on this podcast about the fact that WeWork didn't work uh, and it was going to go bankrupt. Well, now that this IPO is gone, the company's going bankrupt. I mean, there's just no way around it, right? So everybody who invested in WeWork, all of the VC money that went into these private fundraising rounds, right? Where And people on paper were probably marking up the value of their investment because, you know, every round would come at a higher price than the preceding round. And so, oh, great. You know, I got in with a $5 billion valuation and now people are paying a $10 billion valuation and now they're paying a $20 billion valuation. So on paper, everybody's making money. But in reality, nobody made anything because they needed an IPO to actually have real cash instead of just a number on a, on a piece of paper. But now that this IPO is over, all those investors are going to get wiped out. 
There's no way there's any equity because if you look at the balance sheet of WeWork, they are loaded up with debt, not only debt to their bondholders, but debt to landlords, right? They are the biggest uh, tenant in many of the major markets. They're the biggest tenant in New York. They're the biggest tenant in Chicago. In fact, they're the biggest tenant in London, too. I mean, it's across the Atlantic, and it's a lot of different cities. They've rented all these spaces on long-term leases, right? But they don't actually have tenants themselves. Or they're, they're, they're basically making deals with tenants that are so good that they're losing money. So they have all these obligations. They have to pay interest, they have principal payments. They have to pay rent. They don't have any money. They're burning through cash. They were counting on the IPO cash, right, to keep the game going. Well, the game is over. The cash isn't coming. So the thing's got to go bankrupt. And now the, the the bondholders, who will now be the common stockholders, have to figure out if there's any way that they can make a profit on this company, turn this thing around. Maybe they have to go with some of these landlords and renegotiate some of these rents in order to uh, make the company viable or maybe buy their way out of some of the leases. Uh, I mean, maybe there is a way to make the company work. Maybe they have to charge higher rents uh, and and, and maybe longer terms to their subtenants. But whatever they're going to have to do, it's going to slow down the growth of the company because the reason that they were able to have such high growth is because they were underpricing their product. They weren't pricing it high enough to cover the cost of delivering it, and they were borrowing all this money uh, during the process. But this is what was going on all over the U.S. economy, all of this malinvestment. Where did it come from? Artificially low interest rates, cheap money sloshing around, causing non-economically viable businesses to exist and to thrive. We don't want that. See, what the free market is about is about making sure that businesses deliver goods and services at a higher price than the cost of providing them. That is the value add, right? You you combine all of the resources, uh, the factors of production, you hire people, you 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 borrow money, you employ, you know, capital and land, right? And you spend a certain amount of money and then you create value because you're able to price your product or your service higher than what it costs you to produce it or provide it. And that's your reward for being an efficient allocator of resources. But what a lot of these companies were doing, uh, like WeWork, was they were combining all the cost of production and it was costing them more to provide a service than they could charge for the service. They are destroyers of value. Most of these money losing companies are destroyers of value, but it is the Federal Reserve and these investors that are enabling this destruction to continue. Right. Well, now that process is coming to an end. Right. The piper has to be paid. And we're seeing the beginning of this in WeWork. In fact, I'm reading articles now about how landlords, nobody will even want to rent space to WeWork. I mean, they're a lousy credit risk, right? Who would want to rent space? They're going to default. They're going to go into bankrupt. So their business expansion is over. Now they're trying to deal with the wreck. But this is going to be like a domino, right? A lot of other companies that were losing money are going to have to pay the piper. They're going to have to figure out how to uh, turn these fantasies into real businesses. And if they can't do that, they're going to fail. Right. And maybe the creditors will be able to figure out how to restructure these businesses. But a lot of these equity investors are going to lose money. And this is going to send a chill throughout Wall Street, Silicon Valley. You know, all of a sudden now the bar is going to be raised much higher uh, to fund these companies. And so a lot of jobs are going to be lost. A lot of businesses are going to fail 
And that is going to worsen the recession that we're in or hasten uh, the onset of that recession and then, of course, make it worse as it continues. And the other thing that's even going to make it worse for WeWork is when the commercial office space market implodes and WeWork is going to be a big part of that implosion. I mean, that's another part of the problem where uh, rents are going to be going down for office space and you're going to have all these extra vacancies as a result, not only of the WeWork bankruptcy, but just because the economy is going into recession and people are being laid off in other businesses, many of them money losing businesses. And now you have a glut of property. But the other market implication here is if you look deeper, and I touched on this on Wednesday, I believe, but it was a really good point. So I want to, uh, you know, reiterate it by by making it again, is that what we could be seeing here is not just the end of the speculation in the stock market where investors are willing to buy money losing companies, right? This may be a harbinger of things to come in other speculative markets like the bond market. Because as I said, the only thing that's stupider, right, the, you know, the, the bigger sucker bet than uh, buying a money-losing stock is buying a money-losing bond, right? Because when you buy a stock that's losing money, at least there's the possibility that in the future it might not be losing money, right? They can turn the situation around. There may be profits in the future. In fact, that's supposedly what you're betting on. But when you buy a negative-yielding bond, there is no possibility that that bond will ever generate a profit for you. It's impossible. If you hold the bond to maturity, you can only lose money. And that's not just negative yielding bonds where the yield is nominally negative, right? If it's negative, adjusted for inflation, because all you're doing with a bond is clipping coupons until maturity. And even if you have a positive yield of 1%, if inflation is 2%, you're guaranteed to lose money. You can't win. It's impossible. So why would somebody buy a 10 or 30-year bond where they're guaranteed to lose money? Well, because they think they could trade out of it before it matures. Well, the, but then the person buying it from them is making the same bet that they can trade out of it before it matures. Everybody assumes that somebody else is going to be the bag holder, right? That there's always going to be a greater fool until we run out of greater fools and then you're the bag holder. Well, we know who the bag holders are now on uh, WeWork and some of these other stocks. Well, what about the bag holders on negative yielding bonds, right? If this is just the beginning, if investors are now saying we don't want to gamble on money losing stocks. Well, maybe bond investors don't want to gamble anymore on money losing bonds. So maybe the bond market is also going to collapse, right? The negative yielding bond market and of course the junk bond market too, right? They're, they're not negative yield, but the yields are priced much too low relative to the risks of lending to these companies, right? And of course, you know, many of these money losing companies, right? They have junk bonds. Look what's happening to the bonds. WeWork is not publicly traded, but look what's happening to their bonds, right? Their bonds are imploding, right? So this is going to happen. And I think the bursting of the bond market bubble is much more significant than the bursting of the stock market bubble. In fact, when the bond market bubble bursts, that's just going to make the air come out of the stock market bubble even faster because a lot of these money losing companies, if they can't get money from the equity markets and if they're losing money providing their goods and services, well, they're bleeding red ink. They need to tap into the credit markets. Now, why anybody would loan money to a company that's losing money doesn't make sense unless you're nuts. But to the extent that they can borrow money, if interest rates start to rise because the bond bubble pops, 
well, then all these companies are going to have to have a much higher cost of capital. In fact, that's going to happen even for creditworthy companies. And if these the German bonds and the Swiss bonds and the Japanese bonds that are now negative yielding all become positive yielding, well, what's that going to do to U.S. interest rates? U.S. interest rates are going to be pushed up at the very time, though, that the Fed wants them down. Right? The Fed is going to be uh, trying to suppress interest rates as they're doing now with their secret QE4 program. The balance sheet was up again about $13 billion last week. Now, that was a reduction from the $75 billion increase the previous week. But I bet we have an even bigger increase uh, this week. We'll get the balance sheet numbers on Thursday. Then, of course, we get the non-farm payroll numbers on Friday. But the Fed is trying to suppress rates. The market's going to be trying to increase rates. But here is the next big implication that nobody is nobody is talking about. In fact, the only person other than me, I think, that I remember uh, reading anything about, Jim Chanos, who's a famed short seller, he had wrote an article, I forget how many months ago, on this topic. And I remember commenting on Chanos's article, you know, when he wrote it, because, you know, he was expressing some of the thoughts that I had been expressing, but really very few or no other people have been talking about. And this is really the the irony, right, of the fact that the Federal Reserve's creation of inflation, right, quantitative easing, was actually working to reduce consumer prices, right? Instead of pushing consumer prices up, which is what inflation would normally do, it was actually acting to suppress uh, consumer prices, right? And the reason that was happening, and this is what Chanos pointed out in his article and something that I've been saying, is that the cheap money that the Fed was supplying into the market is what fueled the boom in money losing companies. It allowed companies that underpriced their products to survive by subsidies from investors. And so this did two things. One, it allowed the company itself, the new company that was trying to gain market share and and grow its top line to price its products lower, right? Than otherwise would be the case. And of course this helps to keep the CPI down. You know, if if you're just trying to get customers, right? And you're willing to lose money in the process, it's not that hard to get customers, right? If I decided that I was going to open up a business and my business was I was going to sell $10 bills for $8 a piece, I could have a thriving business. I mean, I could corner the market on selling $10 bills for $8 a piece. Now, the problem is in a normal economy, I wouldn't be able to survive very long because I'd run out of money. Right. I lose two dollars on every sale. You know, that's the old joke. You know, I lose money on every sale, but I make it up on volume. Well, of course, when you're actually losing money, the more volume you do, the more money you, you lose. And when you're you know, losing your own money, there's a limit to how much money you lose before you throw in the towel and go out of business. But when you have a you know, you're tapping into Wall Street money and you have billions of dollars of VC money coming in because they think that they're going to IPO at 10x or 20x. Well, you can afford to sell a lot of $10 bills to $8 and brag about how great your business is. Look, look at look at my top line. Look at all my new customers. Right now, of course, the bet is, well, one day you can start selling $10 bills for $11 and actually make a profit. But of course, nobody's going to buy the $10 bills when they cost $11. They want them when they cost $8, right? But that doesn't matter until all of a sudden it matters. Now, of course, it's not that blatant what they're doing, but that's actually like what they're doing. Like, look at this company, Chewy, 
right? One of the reasons that Chewy was able to get so much market share from PetSmart, and PetSmart ended up buying into Chewy. And in fact, right now they look pretty smart because I think they cashed out of their investment when Chewy went public. But one of the problems they had with Chewy was that Chewy was taking their customers away by underpricing the products, right? They were pricing the products so low in order to get customers away from other companies like 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 PetSmart. So PetSmart decided to buy their competitor because they said, how can we compete? Because we actually want to make a profit and we're competing with companies that have billions of dollars that they're willing to lose, right? Normally, a business doesn't want to throw away money. But Wall Street, they didn't care about throwing away money because they thought they were going to make it on the IPO. But this was helping to suppress prices because not only did Chewy sell you know pet products for less than the cost of producing them but now they put pressure on uh, on PetSmart and everybody else that's happening all throughout the US economy look at all these retailers that have been going bankrupt you know um forever 21 just filed for bankruptcy today another another a casualty another one bites the dust in the retail space but a lot of these companies have been pressured to keep prices low and some of them, many of them couldn't keep them low enough and they went out of business, right? Because, you know, all these companies that are able to lose money, the American consumer is tapped out, right? They got all kinds of debt. They have lousy jobs, but they have an online connection. And when they want to buy something, they're smart enough to figure out where they can buy it the cheapest. I mean, it's never been easier for consumers to figure out where they can buy something for the absolute cheapest price. And you've got all kinds of online businesses that have free shipping and no sales tax. And so it's cutthroat competition. Well, when you throw into the mix a bunch of companies that are losing money and don't care about profitability, which is only a function of the Fed, it's not a function of a free market and this wild excess on Wall Street, which is being fueled by the Fed, prices have been kept low. Right now, this has paradoxically right worked its way into the CPI. Right. So instead of all this cheap money causing prices to go up, it's helping keep prices from going up. It's kind of putting a lid on a lot of prices. Now, of course, you know, there are prices that are going up that are not affected uh, by this type of competition. And the CPI does not really capture the true rate of increase in consumer prices. But the CPI has benefited from this intense competition that has been fueled by money losing companies that have only been able to be this price competitive because their investors were willing to subsidize those losses and subsidize consumers waiting for the IPO. Well, now that that's over, right, that that pipeline is gone, well, now these businesses have two choices. They have to cut costs and raise prices. Those are their, that's all they could do to try to stay in business. They got to lay people off to minimize their, their expenses and they got to start raising their prices. They got to get money from their customers now. They can't get it from investors, so they got to get it from their customers. The problem is when they ask the customers to pay a market rate that would actually deliver a return for investors, the products and services may no longer be worth it. I mean, it's one thing, hey, if you're willing to sell me this service or this product super cheap, okay, I'll buy it. But when they have to raise the price to the point where it covers all their costs with a reasonable return, then we find out, like Warren Buffett used to say, who's been swimming naked, right? Because the tide's going out. And then a lot of these companies are going to fail. Some may succeed, but on a much smaller scale. But prices will be higher. But more importantly, now 
the competitive pressure is off the brick and mortar companies. All these other companies that have been struggling are now going to have the ability, the latitude to raise prices without losing sales because those low cost competitors that were willing to lose money are not willing to lose it anymore because the investors aren't subsidizing it because they know that the IPO payoff window is no longer open. It's shut. So in other words, consumer prices going up. So this recession, again, the economy is going to weaken and prices are going to go up just as the Fed is kicking in the monetary gas, right? Prices are going to be going up because of supply and demand and all these artificial factors that have been suppressing them are going to give way and prices are going to go up. Meanwhile, even higher because a lot of the other companies have already been driven out of business. So there's even less competition now in the brick and mortar world. So the prices go up just as the Fed is throwing gasoline on the fire because they're going to be doing more QE. They're going to be doing more rate cuts in order to fight off this recession that has started in manufacturing. Manufacturing is already in recession. The rest of the economy is going to follow. Right, Because it's all a function of consumers and government spending borrowed money. The cost of borrowing that money is going to go up. Right? And everybody is loaded up with debt. And the debt service costs are going to overwhelm the economy, which is why the Fed is trying so hard to suppress it. Ultimately, it's going to fail. But the only way it can postpone the pain is massive inflation. To keep printing money to artificially... Uh, suppress rates as long as they can by creating as much inflation as they can until it blows up. And by the way, still, the markets are still not pricing in, at least not yet, the increasing reality that Donald Trump is not going to be reelected. In fact, I looked at the, the gambling site of Predicted. Uh, this is the online gaming site. And this is the lowest uh, I've seen the odds on Trump. He's now at 39%. So you bet 39 cents, and if Trump becomes president, you win a dollar. And Elizabeth Warren continues to gain traction. Uh, she is by far now in the front runner in the, uh, the Democratic primary. And all this stuff that's going on with the Ukraine, all of this stuff is hurting Biden. It's hurting Trump, and it's also hurting Biden. So it is elevating Elizabeth Warren. And the market is not even afraid. I mean, apart from the fact that, you know, she was out talking today about, you know, breaking up big tech and they had some news. Zuckerberg was, you know, talking uh, to uh, some of his employees and some of these tapes came out, uh, you know, how, you know, th this it kind of sucks for Facebook. But, you know, we're going to have to have a legal challenge because she's Elizabeth Warren wants to break up Facebook. And then, you know, she responds, oh, you know, these guys are evil. They're terrible. They're a threat to our democracy. They're destroying our privacy. Look, Facebook isn't a threat to anybody. What do they do? They give away their product. How are they threatening us? By giving us a free product? All you have to do is stop using Facebook. You don't like Facebook, don't use Facebook. They have no power over anybody. But the problem is a lot of people like to use Facebook because it doesn't cost anything. And advertisers like advertising on Facebook. And I don't give a damn if advertisers have information about me. I want advertisers to have information about me so they can advertise products to me that they think might improve my life. And I can find out about products that I might otherwise have known about. What I don't like is the government getting information about me because the government's going to use that information against me. right? Facebook you know, or any private company, how do they get my money? They earn it through voluntary exchange to mutual benefit in a free market. How does the government get my money? They take it by brute force, right? Whether I like it or not. 
And what are they going to do with all the information they gather about me? They're going to use it to diminish my rights, to diminish my liberty, to make sure that society, you know, can't fight back against their oppression. You know, as governments get more and more oppressive, right, the need to get more and more information about their citizens is important because they want to spy on their citizens, because they want to make sure if any citizens try to organize a rebellion that they could crush it. So the more information they have, once you destroy all financial privacy, you have more control. And once the government has more control, it can grab more power because it doesn't have as much of a threat from the public to rise up because they've basically shut down those possibilities because they can quickly figure out what everybody's doing and grab you and throw you in jail or you know execute you or whatever they end up doing. Uh, but that's the threat. I mean, uh, Elizabeth Warren is saying that Facebook is a threat to our democracy. No, they're not. First of all, we're supposed to be a republic, and it's Elizabeth Warren and the government that is a threat to the republic. But the point I'm trying to make is she wants to break up big tech. I mean, she wants to come in here and she wants to force workers to have seats on the board. She thinks companies should be organized for the benefit of their workers. Right. Or other stakeholders that the owners are just one stakeholder that, you know, it's like it's not your own private property. They're just basically destroying and nationalizing private property, which is basically what she wants to do. And all these Democrats and now Sanders is coming out with more taxes on companies. Right. If they if they have a, a, a certain gap between what the CEO makes and what their lowest paid people make, they want to have an extra tax on top of all the other extra taxes. Right. But of course, you know, what are companies going to do? Right. If you start putting in these these taxes based on uh, your low-skilled workers versus your higher-skilled workers, the best way to avoid the tax is to fire most of your low-skilled workers, most of your low-paid workers, so that you increase the pay of your lowest-paid worker, which means you know you don't hire the people that you would normally pay a little bit of money to because they don't have a lot of skills. You outsource that. You automate that. And stuff. So that's what the, all the taxes would do. But what uh, the markets are overlooking is – the destructive force that is going to be unleashed in 2021, a raid on corporate America, the villainization uh, of corporations, right? Profits are evil. Profits are bad. Businesses are bad. They're greedy. They're evil. We need to regulate them. We need to tax them. The rich are bad. They have too much money. They have money at your expense. They're keeping you down. We need to uh, redistribute the money. We need to equalize these gaps. These higher taxes on capital, higher taxes on income are going to crush uh, the valuations on U.S. stocks, which are already very high. I mean, earnings are going to fall anyway. But when you take these confiscatory type of taxes and draconian regulations that really amount to confiscation of private property, and that private property being stock market equity, right, this is a real disaster that's looming on the horizon. No one is paying attention. I just read this survey of corporate CEOs. I think something like two-thirds or three-quarters of them expect Donald Trump to be reelected. I mean, don't they look at the polls? Donald Trump is losing in every poll. Every poll. And I know people always say, oh, he was losing in the polls before. It doesn't matter. Look, Donald Trump lost the popular vote. The polls were right about that. He lost the popular vote. It wasn't even close. He lost the popular vote. The reason Trump won is because in a few swing states... He won by slim margins, and that tipped him over the scales for the Electoral College. Well, every one of those states that he barely won to win the president, every one, he's way behind, way behind right now. Doesn't matter who the Democrats nominate, he's way behind. So this is a different story. 
it's it's going to be a long shot for Trump to win. I don't know. Maybe this impeachment stuff could somehow backfire. I know that Bill Clinton became a little bit more popular after a failed attempt to impeach him. Uh, maybe it will work for Trump. I doubt it because I think ultimately his Achilles heel is going to be the economy. Uh, will be in a, a recession and all the empty promises. He promised to make America great again. He promised to pay off the debt. He promised to end the trade deficits. He promised to bring back manufacturing. All these empty promises that were not fulfilled are going to be used against him. He's going to be his own worst enemy. All the Democrat is going to have to do, all Elizabeth Warren is going to have to do is say, here's what Trump said as a candidate and here's what he did as president, right? And and, and that's all he needs to do. And, you know, he loses. But the markets haven't even begun to price this in. But we'll see. I mean, the fourth quarter, historically, we have a lot of bad fourth quarters, right? September is normally the worst month for stocks. Uh, we went, we got through September okay, but we've had some very bad Octobers, right? We've had some big crashes in the month of October, and all the ingredients are there. I mean, you know, there's so much stuff for the market to potentially sell off on. I think the odds are pretty high that that can happen. But look at the currency markets, look at the bond markets, look at the gold market. These are a lot of your other warning signs. But finally. I want to mention the cryptocurrency markets because this could also fit very nicely into this narrative of speculators getting burned and giving up on money losing stocks, getting burned and potentially giving up on money losing bonds. And the other asset class would be cryptocurrencies. I mean, cryptocurrencies don't make money. Right. You if you buy Bitcoin or any other coin, you don't get a dividend. You don't get any rent. You don't get any interest. Right. You just own an asset and you're speculating that somebody else will buy it from you at a higher price. You know, and in fact, ever since, uh, you know, I've been talking about this Grayscale uh, Bitcoin Investment Trust. Right. That's the, the one that launched the Drop Gold campaign. Well, that particular trust has a two percent annual fee, right? I, and I think it's funny too that that Siebert, one of his knocks against gold, one of the reasons that he says you should drop gold is because it's expensive to store gold. Now, I don't know any company that charges 2% a year to store gold. You know, I think most companies charge maybe somewhere between 25 basis points and 50 basis points. That's a half a percent a year to store gold. Right now, of course, you could also store your gold for free if you store it yourself. But if you don't actually want to hassle with storing your own gold and you want to entrust a third party with storing your gold, you know, 25 basis points to 50 basis points a year is generally what you pay for a segregated storage. Well, Grayscale is charging 2% per year to store your Bitcoin and a few other cryptocurrencies. That's all they're doing. They're storing it. So on the one hand, he's saying don't buy gold because it's expensive to store, but buy Bitcoin through my trust because it's 10 times as expensive to store or you know seven times as expensive to store as gold. But if you are buying the Bitcoin investment trust, GBTC is the symbol. Thing was down six and a half percent today, nine dollars and ninety cents. It got as high as seven dollars and forty cents earlier in the drop gold campaign course, anybody that bought this thing and dropped their gold, right? They've, they've dropped a lot of money is what they've done. They missed out on a rise in gold and they got crushed in grayscale. But this is just getting started. This thing is going down a lot further 
than that. In fact, it started the year around $3.60 or so uh, when Bitcoin was, you know, in the low 3000s, which is where it's going. In fact, it's going much lower than that ultimately. But if you buy the grayscale trust, that is money losing, right? That is that is worse than any negative yielding bond. You have a negative yield of 2%. It costs 2% for you to maintain your investment uh, in, in, in Bitcoin trust. So you need the price to go up. Otherwise, you lose money. You lose 2% a year if the price stays sideways. So it has to go up by definition because you have to offset the 2% a year carrying cost. But, you know, the entire cryptocurrency market, if you think about it, is like a negative yielding bond because it costs a lot of money to maintain the network. Right. And everybody who owns Bitcoin or any other cryptocurrency, in effect, you own part of those expenses because the miners and everybody else are constantly selling new Bitcoin into the market to cover the cost of mining, which is diluting the value of all the existing Bitcoin out there. So if the market demand doesn't grow, right, if there aren't new buyers coming in, right, if it just stays steady, then the price has to gradually go down every year by the cost of maintaining the network, which is very high, especially with all the uses of, uh, of energy. And my point is that maybe what we're seeing in the stock market, what I think we're going to see in the bond market, is what we're already now starting to see in the cryptocurrency market. As I mentioned uh, on my last podcast, Bitcoin broke down finally out of that descending triangle that had been carving out for months. The price of Bitcoin over the weekend several times went back below 8,000. But, you know, it has some support now, uh, you know, 7,800, 7,900s. There were some buying coming in. I don't think that support is going to last long. I think maybe the next little minor support is around 7,500. I don't think that'll last long. I think we're going lower. Uh, as I'm typing this, we've rallied back up to around 8,400. I mean, we did that before. In fact, when I recorded my last podcast, it was in the middle of rallying. In fact, when I started that podcast, it was about 8,400. And when I finished it, it was closer to 8,600. But then it sold off and went back down below 8,000. Well, it rallied again earlier this morning. I think we did get as high as about 8,500 maybe in Bitcoin before it pulled back to about 82 and change. And again, as I'm recording this, it's about 8,400. Uh, but I think what's happening here is that the same transition is going to be happening with the cryptocurrencies. The speculators are going to leave. They're going to get out of the market. And instead of buying fool's gold, they're going to buy real gold, right? What I think is going to be happening in the stock market, instead of speculators investing in money-losing companies, right, they're going to look for profitable companies. They're going to look for value, right, which is what I'm positioned for, what I've got my clients positioned for. We own value. We own good dividend-paying stocks, stocks that we're buying at a low price relative to sales, relative to book value. These are the types of stocks that investors have ignored as they've been chasing hype and momentum. Well, now that that trade is blown up, I think the flows will reverse and investors will start looking for value, which is, of course, what I already own, and they'll start bidding up the prices 
of those type of stocks, the same thing will happen in the bond market. Investors are not going to buy negative yielding bonds. They're not going to be buying bonds because they think they can flip them to a greater fool. They're going to actually look for bonds that have investment merit, that they think they can hold to maturity and clip the coupons and get a decent return. And to do that, rates are going to have to go higher and bond prices are going to have to go lower. Well, the same thing might happen. The same trade is going to happen in the cryptocurrencies in Bitcoin. Instead of just speculating on fool's gold or you know digital gold and hoping that the market's going to go up, investors are going to go for the real thing, right? Uh, Bitcoin had basically stolen a lot of gold's thunder over the last, you know, five, 10 years, because the price of gold was in a correction, right? We got up to 1900 in 2011, and it's been downhill, right? It went down to 1050, and now it's back up to, you know, close to 1500, but still not much. But during that time, uh, Bitcoin stole the spotlight because it went from pennies to 20,000, right? And now, even though it's at 8400, uh, the gain is still huge. In fact, I keep reading these articles, and this is what a lot of these, uh, you know, Bitcoin guys either they don't get it or they just, you know, they do get it, but they're they're just putting spin on this thing. But they always want to go back uh, in time and say, oh, look, well, Bitcoin is beating gold uh, year to date. Uh, okay, yes, year to date, even though Bitcoin has fallen from fourteen hundred uh, in earlier this year from fourteen hundred down to eight thousand. 40%, over 40% decline. Yes, if you go back to the beginning of the year, Bitcoin is beating gold. But so what? What does that mean? If you buy Bitcoin today, those past gains don't matter. You don't get those gains. You have to decide where is it going in the future. And I would say the trend is down. But then they always want to go back. These Bitcoin uh, bugs always want to go back and say, well, but if you'd have bought Bitcoin 10 years ago, this one guy wrote up a tweet and said, if you put $10,000 into Bitcoin 10 years ago, it's worth $24 billion or something like that, you know, when it was like one penny, right? And if you would have bought it, and so therefore it's beating gold. Well, what difference does that make? That means nothing. That big gain means nothing to the guy that buys today. In fact, look, in a couple of years, if Bitcoin is 1000 Right? And gold is at 2000 You'll still be able to say, yeah, but if you bought Bitcoin 12 years ago, you're beating gold. In fact, if Bitcoin falls to $100, somebody can still make the argument, yeah, but if you bought it at a penny, you're still up 10,000 times on your money. None of that stuff matters. None of these big gains as the bubble was inflating mean anything to the people who are buying it right now. Right? But people are in denial. They're not looking at the short term. They don't see that the bubble is pricked. They weren't able to see that gigantic um, descending triangle. And now they look at that Bitcoin chart. I mean, if anybody actually knows anything about charts, take a look at the long-term Bitcoin chart. If I was a bull, I would be scared shitless to own Bitcoin. I mean, there is so much air beneath that chart. You Look where the real support is. Look how much lower, right? It's a vacuum. Right? This thing could collapse, yet everybody is completely complacent. Nobody is worried. Everybody is convinced, oh, don't worry. We're going to go to new highs. We're going to go to 20,000. We're going to go to 50,000. Yeah, I'm sure people felt the same way when they invested in WeWork. Oh, who cares about these losses? None of this matters. This is going to be a huge IPO. I'm going to make all kinds of money. Right? The best laid plans of mice and men. Right? All these people have big dreams, right? 
fantasies about huge wealth, instant wealth. Well, the fantasies have collapsed for the WeWork investors. They're going to collapse for the Bitcoin investors. It's all happening at the same time. And it all makes sense, right? This speculative party started by the Fed is coming to an end. And now we have to pay the piper. Thank you.